Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. And delighted to be joined by my colleague, Adva Saldinger. Hey, Adva. Hi, Raj. Hi, everyone. Good to be with you. Of course, Adva is a senior reporter here at DevX and covers everything development finance uh, and, and helps to write DevX Invested, our weekly newsletter on all things development finance. So we're going to get into some of that today. And we've got a special guest, a return visitor in Jonathan Glennie. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Raj. Great to hear your voice, Jonathan. Uh, I think people know you. You've been on the show in the past, but you are, of course, a noted writer and practitioner on all things global development, a co-founder of Global Nation. And you've got your new YouTube show, Global Cooperation Update, out. Um, And so it's great to have you here, Jonathan. All right, well, let's dive in. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about. And maybe we could just start with a look-ahead piece that you wrote, Adva, uh, because this looks like it's going to be a big year in development finance. And you talked about what are the big issues to watch in 2024. Now, to be fair, I feel like we thought 2023 was going to be a big year and 2022 was going to be. And and in truth, there were some some reasons that those years were important. But let's just hear from you what you found as you went and spoke to experts about the development finance issues to watch in 2024. I mean, I think you're right. To some extent, every year is big and important because there is just very clearly not enough money to tackle all of these issues um, right now. So I think part of the challenge of the development finance system is trying to figure out how to bring more money into the system. And so I do think, um, you know, to that end, one of the key themes was around private capital mobilization. But part of the reason that this is such an important year um, I think it's multifold. I think, one, we saw a lot of progress on um, World Bank reform last year. I think people want to see that go further. Not only the bank do more, but they want other MDBs to be pushing their balance sheets. They want more cooperation and coordination in the system for um, those multilateral development banks, but also for other development finance institutions and the broader system of public development banks. Um, one of the, one of the things that's really important to watch this year is at COP at the end of the year, um, they have to set a new climate finance target to replace this goal that you know wealthy nations would provide $100 billion a year um, to lower income countries. Obviously, that goal was barely met. It was just met for the first time after um, many years of this pledge. And so I think there's going to be a lot of conversation around climate finance and what that sort of next framework looks like. And the other thing, if we're looking ahead, you know, a, a lot of what we talk about in development finance today um, and a lot of the priorities came out of the discussion at the Financing for Development conference in Addis Ababa in 2015. And in 2025, there's going to be sort of the next iteration of that conference. And most of the groundwork for that is going to happen this year. So determining what are the key priorities, how are we going to look at, you know, domestic resource mobilization, taxation, debt, all these really big issues going forward, and of course, mobilization. Um, and so I think that sort of sets sets the framework. We can go more into details on, on some of the specifics, but I think also the sort of broader 
geopolitical and economic environment just put a lot of pressures um, on this space? Yeah, it's worth remembering, right? 2015, I remember well, I wasn't there at Adesaba, but I know we covered it at DevEx. Yeah, it was a very different moment in time. You know, development assistance budgets were growing. There was still a very strong coalition on both the right and the left for foreign assistance in general and donor countries. And of course, it was just the following year that Donald Trump got elected. You started to see UK politics move in a very different direction with Brexit and with, uh, with all that happened in terms of the cuts to, to foreign assistance there. And then that spread to plenty other places and plenty other countries in, in the EU. So it's the political environment today is really different. As you said at the outset, of, uh, like the needs are growing. The financing gap is bigger than it's ever been. And yet it's a much tougher political environment to operate in. So, you know, that's one reason why the MDBs are right at the center and private sector is right at the center of the conversation, because there's this view that, well, we can't squeeze much more out of donor countries. In fact, some of the, the, the volumes of aid might be going down there. So we've got to find a way to make this long sought after idea of blended finance, like actually work and actually work at scale. It's been talked about for a very long time. There are examples, but they're they're few and they tend to be relatively small. So it does feel like this might be a year where all of that comes to a head. Jonathan, this is something you know, you've know written about a lot, thought about a lot at Global Nation and have advocated for kind of a new way of thinking of development assistance to begin with in a much larger pie. H- how do you think about this year ahead? What are you looking out for? Well, it was a great article. I would really recommend it. It's called Development Finance Issues to Watch in 2024. It really it really kind of set the scene. And uh, before I forget, there was one bit that, that was kind of very kind of tragic, but also made me chuckle, which was a quote from Kevin Gallagher when you were talking about debt. And he said something like, the one piece of good news is that everyone agrees this isn't working, which I thought was kind of which was so amusing because kind of looking for the bright, the brightness, even in the fact that really the, the whole kind of common framework hasn't worked uh, annoyingly last year. I mean, there's so much to touch on from what Adva uh, spoke about. And I guess as a, as a kind of campaigner, as I guess we all are, you always start to separate these things out into, into medium to longer term transformational change and then the kind of what wins are on the table. And I think there's a, and it's useful that you mentioned the FFD process there, the, the financing development process. I was there in Addis and there's so much to talk about there, but I think the, we can separate those two things out. So kind of what wins are on the table is kind of a 2024 debate. You know, is there going to be more progress on the uh, World Bank uh, reform and MDB reform? I'd be interested to hear from you both what actually was reformed last year? Because I know there was a lot of talk about it and we talked about recapitalization and we talked about shares and SDRs and stuff. I'm not yet clear what actually happened um, of significance last year. And I feel like 2024 is going to be the year that something kind of fairly important has to happen at the World Bank. And yes, with the other um, development banks. And I have to say, I'm quite a fan of the financing common uh, process that's been led by the French. Um, It's kind of amazing that there hasn't been a process of everyone getting together, all the banks getting together, national and international. Um, and thinking all the, these development banks, these public banks, and thinking through some kind of joint strategy and working better together, that is now happening. And I think quite relatively successfully, I mean, it's hard to get it right, but that's, that's I think, a bright part. But I think the fundamental, you raise the private thing. I just don't know where to start or stop, Raj, because there's just so much to say. But one of the major things in Addis, and you're right, it was before the kind of 2016 moment, Brexit and Trump uh, kind of depressed us all. But... It was a it was a bright moment, but even then, 
there was a feeling that ODA was coming to the end of its usefulness. Yes, there was kind of support for it, but it was a, the whole billions to trillions thing. That was the phrase of the moment. It's billions to trillions. We need trillions for the SDGs. That's not coming from the public sector. It's got to come from the private sector. And so there was that belief in private and blended. Now, you know, what is it, seven years on, eight years on? I think the evidence, and you've kind of implied it, is pretty poor in terms of private money coming to the rescue. And it feels to me still, it felt to me then, and it feels to me still like a bit of a self-serving argument that's not based on the evidence. The evidence is, and this is also in the piece that Adva wrote, there's not the money for the low-income countries. There's as much money to be made by private capital in US Treasury bonds as there is in investing in low-income countries. So why would you take that risk? So the problem we face is, is the reality is we need tons more public money. However much people say there isn't any, that's actually the reality. And the view that private's going to come to the rescue kind of unicorn thinking. It's just not really going to come to the rescue, which is not to say we shouldn't push for it. And, and of course, we can expand it in many ways and it's necessary. But the idea that it's going to plug the gaps where the, those gaps that need plugging um, doesn't seem to be held up by reality. And I'd be interested in your views on that. And then the final thing, and I'll stop here, is on climate finance. So you said, Adver, that kind of it was finally met in the final year. Well, maybe that 100 billion number was ticked in some way. But certainly the Oxfam report that I read just before uh, the COP was pretty amazing. Uh, I think mean, actually it was the last, the previous COP. And it, it said something like 80% of that climate finance was loans. And half of that, so 40% of the 100 billion, was loans that weren't even concessional. So market rate loans. The final 20% was grants, but it was, it was aid, right? It was ODA, it was DACable. So therefore, by definition, not additional. So this was a massive, massive failure on the part of the wealthy countries to deliver that relatively small level of climate finance that was promised. So look, then, then, and this brings me on to FFD. I said it would be my last point. This really will be my last point. We need to get those wins in 2024. Great. But we also need to shift the narrative. We cannot continue with this narrative that public money is unavailable at the international level. We need tons more of it. And it's it, it, it simply we, we, we won't fix our world without it. Yeah, and you're right, although it's a tough political environment to make that case. And I would say even before the politics got this tough, as, as the climate finance $100 billion yeah. pledge shows, even before we suffered from what I call pledgeflation, where everybody would just yeah. up the pledge. You know, okay, we're going to have another, you know, another cop. We need a bigger number. Let's, let's just make it up. You know, how big can we make it? Because there's so little accountability as to whether you actually meet it. And even when you maybe say you've met it, once you dig into the details, as you just said, that Oxfam did, you find that the quality of the funding or the additionality of the funding isn't really real. And there's just so much of that in this space. And it, it does feel, at least to me, like, you know, some of the issues we've been talking about for many years that need to be funded are starting to come to a head, climate maybe being the most prominent, where it does actually matter whether you actually meet the pledge, you know, whether the funding is there. There are, you know, a number of countries, as Advaz Peace mentions, that are right teetering at that edge of debt default. We thought it would come in the last couple of years. It hasn't, but it could be 2024 that finally sort of breaks the camel's back and you see a number of countries in the situation that Zambia and Sri Lanka have been in. And, you know, what does it mean for migration? What does it mean for humanitarian need? And what are sort of the cascading effects uh, of that? So 2024 could be that sort of year. I think you put your finger on a really important point, John, and I'd love to get involved in this too, because she and I were both at the Center for Global Development on Monday for the talk that uh, Ajay Banga gave to uh, Masood Ahmed. The two of them were on stage having a conversation. 
And, and Bongo was great, uh, as he always is, in terms of being very direct and clear as a former corporate executive on what he thinks needs to happen. And I think to your point, Jonathan, in some ways, they did the easy stuff last year. Uh, it probably didn't feel easy at the time for the people who made it happen. But in a way, looking back, it was sort of the easier stuff. And that was kind of getting shareholders to agree these institutions need to reform. There needs to be an evolution, changing the leadership at the bank. Of course, there was leadership change at the IDB too, which is not incidental and important. And essentially figuring out how they could sweat the balance sheet, you know, take what they have and keep their AAA rating, but allow the banks to borrow and lend more uh, with, the, with the same paid-in capital they already have. So they've kind of done that bit. And now what they need to do this year is the really hard fixing of the plumbing, as, as Ajay Banga talks about it, inside pretty bureaucratic pretty stale institutions, right? Where, you know, these are very cozy jobs and very highly sought after. And the people who are there are very talented and, and bright and have gold-plated resumes, but getting them to, to see major change afoot and to embrace that is not easy. And I think that's what's required. And Banga talked about, for example, the need to change the way guarantees work. You know, they need to really dramatically increase the number of guarantees and that's the way you get private sector capital to flow into, let's say, renewable energy projects, because you tell a private investor, well, look, the World Bank will back you up. You know, you won't lose everything, even though you're investing in a country that might feel risky to you and politics could shift. And maybe there's even foreign currency uh, risk as well. We will help back you up. But to do that, the bank needs to be much more robust in its offering. And as Banga says, needs to have a single offering and not have guaranteed departments in different parts of the bank that all do their own thing. So this kind of internal plumbing change is not easy to do. And I think this is the year we'll look at the World Bank and the IDB and the AFDB and others to see, did they do it? What, what do you think on this point, Adva? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think that sort of the capital adequacy framework, right? How do you stretch the, the current balance sheet is sort of the piece that they did last year to answer your question, Jonathan. Um, and, and I think, you know, beyond just looking at guarantees, and I think a lot of the people I've spoken to, including folks in the private sector, say on, on guarantees, they also really need to think about how MEGA could not only be bigger, but also be better. So I think the types of guarantees and how those instruments are structured and who can access them are also things that the bank will have to contend with on that piece of it. Um, and I do think guarantees will be important more broadly than just at the World Bank as an instrument in the year ahead. But I think one of the things that stands out to me in talking to people, they said, sure, the World Bank needs to be bigger, but they also really need to do some things differently. One of the things Bonga talked about was, you know, trying to remove the red tape, make the process move faster. I think he said, you know, IDA projects have 1,100 rules that, you know, everything has to be filtered through. And so that makes things slow. He talked about speeding up approvals, right? So right now, you know, everyone wants to be involved in, in, in signing off on a project and maybe that many people isn't necessary. So bringing down the time from when a project is first considered to when it's approved by the board to about 12 months, trying to get the board to approve tranches of capital around certain programs so not every single project needs approval. Things like that to um, improve the capacity of the bank to operate more quickly. But in a big yeah, and, that, and that's really important, yeah. Vas. Sorry to interrupt, but just because here we are, as often we do, talking about the amount of money going into development finance 
And what Bongo is saying is, look, that you can increase the amount. That's great. Thank you. But we actually can't deliver it in yeah. the current under the current structure. And they could deliver it much more quickly if they fix some of those issues. I will say, in terms of thinking more big picture, in terms of what the World Bank could do, um, a lot of people talk about the World Bank being able to use its balance sheets differently. I think I think this is maybe particularly applicable for IFC, which does private sector investments. But how can the World Bank think about um, structuring and maybe doing an initial investment in a project, but then selling those investments to the private sector once they're de-risked or more palatable for the private sector? And that would then free up their balance sheets to do more. So really rethinking how they're using their balance sheets and, and their role in, in sort of putting together and structuring investments and not always holding on to them on their own balance sheets. How you set up targets and goals can obviously speak to that. I think one thing that was striking to me is if you say that, you know, X percent of projects need to go to climate, for example, they might be inclined to do or X percent of the money that you commit has to go to climate, really big climate projects and hold them on their balance sheet so that they can meet that target. So really thinking about how targets and then incentives for staff um, are structured to ensure that they are targeting mobilization or whatever those sort of key performance indicators are um, that would really align with new objectives. Yeah, and one of the things I'm going to be looking at a lot this year is do these institutions, and I mean the MDBs, but also the DFIs, and there's a lot of, as you've written about it, Bob, there's a lot of momentum behind bilateral DFIs in countries like the UK and the Netherlands, you know, moving aid dollars from traditional contracts and grants into their DFIs. And who in that constellation of players is going to start kind of originating deals? Because there's a pretty big cultural shift, right? If you worked at the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank, a lot of the focus was go meet with the Minister of Transport, convince them that they need a, a road project, or maybe they already know they do, write up the terms of a loan and lend the money to, to hire a construction company and build, build a road. And here we're talking about something very different, which is originating you know, a much larger scale thing like greening an entire economy or digitizing an entire economy and then figuring out, well, how do we facilitate this so that private sector companies and investors come in? And that means things like guarantees become much more important than maybe a, a sovereign loan to the government. And so it's a pretty big shift inside these institutions. And, you know, do these banks actually have the people to go and make these deals? Do they have people with that mindset and skill set? Uh, is it going to be the DFIs that maybe go out there and do that? A lot of the DFIs, I think, are quite used to waiting for the phone to ring. They they sit around waiting for a company to call them and say, hey, we've got a, we've got a deal. Help us fund it. And this is different. I think they need to be much more proactive than they've been before. And so I think that, to me, is a really big question this year is, like, who's going to actually be the deal makers that are needed to bring digitization and renewable energy and, and uh, regenerative agriculture and all the other really key market uh, the kind of market-made development innovations make them happen in a lot of the countries we're talking about. Jonathan, I'd love, love to hear your your take as we evolve this debate. Well, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, I mean, a bunch to say, but just on that last point, it's just I haven't really, you know, I've heard that, that perspective before, but it does still strike me as an interesting perspective for a public development bank to be the one that needs to go out and make deals. I'm sure you're right, but it always feels to me that it is the other way around. It ought to be the other way around. It ought to be 
the public sector in in countries looking to the bank and asking for support and and and, and suggesting deals. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, executive editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the sustainable development goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Reflecting on the history of the World Bank, I mean, there was a time, probably throughout most of its existence, and, you know, that's now so deeply within its DNA, that it doesn't need to deserve to exist. It just is the bank. And I think that that is clearly something that's changed over the last 15, 20 years. You know, there are many more options, including private options, but especially including very large public banks that are not the World Bank. Um, So the the World Bank needs to deserve to be bigger, not just to be bigger. And and certainly Global Nation uh, uh, is going to be working a lot on the IDA replenishment, which comes towards the end of this year. And we want the World Bank to succeed, but it needs to deserve to succeed. And, and what you guys have been focusing on is, is cleverer ways to use money, guarantees, those kind of things, which totally support. Um, I think most of the people, the senior people I've spoken to at the bank still think that even with those clever changes or new ideas, we're still talking nowhere near enough money uh, that we need. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to insist that we do need this kind of shifted narrative over a period of time yeah sure it's not this year it's not next year but but we're looking towards the next 10 15 years uh we need to shift the narrative to this to away from the fatalism there is no public money towards the kind of necessity of public money at the international level for the things that we care about and yeah and, and, and interestingly the other thing that is in one of the pieces that you sent me was about this well what banger saying he has to kind of streamline and get money out quick and i totally understand that clearly there's a competition with the chinese and others who are who do that much faster but again we have to remember what the point of the bank and of the world bank and the other banks is and you know development is not a sprint generally speaking there may be the odd sprint but generally speaking we're talking about a fairly long race, even a marathon. I mean, these are investments that need to deliver for people and planet and countries over a period of 10, 15, 20 years. So the idea that it has to be fast and that that's the main criteria, I totally get it and I can see the attractiveness of it and I know that there's competition. But actually what we want the bank for is actually to check that its investments are going to make a difference. Now, I'm one of those people that, while I celebrate the arrival of Chinese money and how fast it is and all that, I'm worried that it is going to dem- over the over the years. It's going the same thing's going to happen to so many development projects of the past, which is you know it's a banking road for a year and then it starts to deteriorate. The impacts on on communities, the impacts on environment, don't show for a year or two. Um, so so what I liked about I think what Bangor is suggesting is that we do need those tight. Um, oversights and social and environmental regulations, but probably for the massive projects and the, and the much smaller ones, such as, you know, a couple of million for this school, you know, that should be much quicker. But we, we, I, I would be worried about reducing the oversight of major investments such as pipeline infrastructure and stuff like that. 
And I guess the, the other thing is, uh, you know, it's all about power and voice. And, 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 you know, in the 70s, the World Bank and the IMF got incredibly powerful because countries got mega indebted and they didn't use that power well. OK, they they made huge mistakes in the way that they forced countries to do particular things under this kind of brand new neoliberal um, uh, kind of policy agenda, the Washington Consensus. I think that's generally considered true now. And we've, we've clearly moved on from that and we've got critiques of that. But 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 the bank and the bank and fund might get powerful again uh, because so many countries are indebted and are desperate for money now. My worry is it's not just about, as you said, Raj, it's not just about quantity of money. It's not just about getting money out there. It's making sure that it works for people and planet. And it didn't in the 80s and 90s. It was it was it's actually really negative. So somehow we have to make sure that the bank uses its money wisely and is accountable to the people who are supposedly benefiting from it. And that is a huge voice and accountability issue. And how do we change the structure so there is uh, oversight uh, of a more representative nature? And that's the kind of thing that I don't think really is on the agenda uh, at the moment. But you could tell yeah. me if I'm wrong. No, I think it's such a smart point. I really do. Because, you know, and this is the, the needle that Ajay Banga is trying to thread and the other MDB presidents are trying to thread, which is they need to move faster. They need to respond to the political demands of their shareholders who say, hey, there's a migrant crisis. There are conflicts that are spreading. Climate is getting work. We need to move. And we're competing with China. But on the other hand, they don't want to copy what China has done because, you know, it's a little early to say, but in the, in the same way you're saying that the 70s and 80s, we saw a lot of failures in the international financial institutions like the World Bank. I think you may very well see that the Belt and Road Initiative is seen in the future as a pretty big failure. And, and why is that? Well, for some of the same reasons you mentioned, huge amount of money sent out very quickly without clear development thinking without bringing in the community and their voice into the process without the kind of environmental and social safeguards. And what do you end up with? Well, countries that are heavily indebted that, you know, as a result, can't afford to pay back their loans, can't borrow further. As Vazpiz mentioned, you know, many countries now are in a situation they simply can't borrow. And a lot of that is because they took money on balance sheet and sometimes off in the kind of special purpose vehicles from Chinese funders. And so it's a fair question. And all the infrastructure that was built through the Belt and Road, is it going to last? Is there a plan to keep it maintained and updated? As you say, roads and water points, there are so many cases where they have been built and then they, they, you know, they fall into waste. So it's a great point. And I think this is what these institutions and this evolution need to get right. It is a very narrow gap to pass through. They need to grow, move faster, but deliver real development results for actual people that are sustainable and last. That is a that is a very tall order. Oh, go ahead, Ivan. You want to say something about that? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in on, on one thing that Jonathan said, was, which was really talking about the need for more public money. And, and I think one thing that's important is where is that public money spent? Um, and, and I think as we look at DFIs and MDBs, and um, there are certain markets where the private sector is just far less likely to go. It is, in some cases, too risky for them. The lowest income countries, post-conflict countries, maybe in some of them there are economic opportunities, but that's where those public dollars are going to be important. And, and Banga said he thinks IDA is the most important part of the World Bank because for many of those countries, there's no other alternative, right? I think one of the things that's quite interesting is, you know, the World Bank tried 
this approach using some item money through what they call a private sector window to get IFC and MEGA to invest more sort of in these low income countries. And Charles Kenny at Center for Global Development actually did an interesting analysis this week that found that actually it didn't really do that, that, you know, IFC investments in IDA countries as a percentage of total investments actually dropped from about 23% in 2015 to 9% today. So I think really looking at what are the appropriate instruments and how do you balance where more potential money goes to ensure because you know, maybe you do need some form of guarantee or other instruments in middle income countries to bring in the private sector. But one of the key disconnects is, you know, communication between not only the MDBs and DFIs, but the broader development community and folks in finance. I think too often there isn't a discussion about who can take what risk. And this is something that um, Stephanie von Friedeberg, who actually spent, you know, really long portion of her career um, at IFC before going to City, she said that the two parties are really just not good at talking about who can bear what risk and then figuring out how you then need to sort of structure deals appropriately and in a way that are going to speak to sort of those country needs and, and country priorities. So I think that's just one, one piece that I think is quite interesting to think about as we think about more money, but also where is it spent and how is it spent? Yeah, fascinating point. And I would just add to it as we move on to something else that you know, if you talk to people in our community, you know, people who work in a lot of these lowest income, most fragile countries, they're really not as scared to go there and to invest there and to work there as private sector investors sitting in London or Frankfurt or, or New York. And there's this view, a pretty common view I find when I talk to people in the DFI business that perceived risks by private investors are much higher than real risks in the countries we're talking about. And if that's true, then instruments like guarantees really could work. I mean, to think of it as an extreme example, you take the most war-torn, conflict-ridden place that no investor wants to touch and say, well, we'll guarantee 100% of your investment back if you invest there. We promise you'll get every penny back. And maybe they do it because, yeah, it's a guarantee, 100%. The World Bank or some other institution is, is promising they'll pay me back completely. And if, if the DFI community is right, those risks are actually much less than the private sector thinks. And so you won't have to use that guarantee 100%. And as a result, you'll be able to pull in more private money than you would have otherwise. So I still think even in the poorest places, there's there's real opportunity for crowding in private sector investment. I think I that's something... true. But I also think, how do you how do you build those markets and support, support not only domestic capital markets, but local players? So local currency investing and figuring out how you protect against you know, foreign exchange risk, I think will be critical to mobilizing capital in those markets. Absolutely right, that's absolutely right. And, but if anyone's gonna do that, it's gonna be these institutions, they haven't to date, but really this is time for them to step up and do it. The World Economic Forum has a whole working group on this um, called the Humanitarian and Resilience Investing Initiative. They've been working for a few years and making so, some progress. So Raj, so Raj yeah. I, 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 I agree with you on guarantees. And I agree with what you're saying about, with, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right that there is this kind of, um, the private sector views it as more risky in general. And this, this kind of, you know, I guess information uh, issue needs to be shared and de-risking. But, but, but what, one thing you just said there, you know, they've got to step up and do it. Okay. I look at this as 20 years of saying that. So my question to you is, just to be provocative, what, why, aren't, why haven't they done it? It's literally what you just said was said 
at Addis. That's eight years ago. Previous to Addis. I mean, it's not like the World Bank hasn't realised. It may go back to your kind of idea that maybe they're they're not maybe the right people, or maybe it's kind of just, just kind of heavy bureaucracy. But 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 you know, once again in 2023, we're saying right now the World Bank has to go and really persuade these private investors and de-risk and stuff like that. Why haven't they done it already? I mean, what's taken them so long? That there is a fundamental problem here that isn't solved by saying right now let's do it. No, I think you are so right, and I think it's a fair critique. And I would just say, if we can't do it now, then maybe never. Because what has changed since 2015 is shareholder countries are actually pushing these institutions in a way they never used to. You know, it used to be that the boards of these institutions were the ones who were risk averse. Now they're telling these these MDBs, "Hey, we actually need you to do a lot more than you've been doing. We want to push you." That's new. And we have a president of the World Bank, as, as a good example, that is totally unexpected. We've never had someone like this lead one of these institutions. A, a, a really big change from the very the, the immediate past president and David Malpass, but you know, really different. Someone who's coming, born in a developing country, rose up through the ranks of business, has run a large corporation, and really speaks the language of the private sector in a way we've never had a World Bank president do, maybe with the exception of James Wolfenson, uh, who is widely seen as one of the more successful bank presidents, by the way. So I think, I think the conditions have shifted. So I think your critique is absolutely spot on, but the conditions have shifted and now is sort of the moment for these institutions. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think for the most part, a big reason it doesn't happen is that most of these institutions are still too risk averse. Um, and they're you know, there's not, they're not incentivized to take that risk for the most part. Now that is something shareholders could change. I don't know that we've fully seen them change the, um, the risk appetite yet. Um, so that, that is something that, you know, maybe could happen this year, but I think, um, many of these institutions just, you know, don't have the systems in place to incentivize taking that risk or the possibility for, for failure. And I think that's part of the reason that we don't see, um, more investments in these areas. We are fast running out of time, but I, I just want to mention a couple of other stories that, that have come out this week. Maybe, Avad, you can speak really quickly about your own reporting on what is in the sort of uh, ill-fated uh, legislation on the Hill, the, the famed deal on the border that included some funding for humanitarian needs. What's, what's in that and, and what should we expect? Um, I mean, I guess what we should expect at this point is that that bill is going nowhere um, <laughs> because it's already dead. But um, it's essentially, you know, in this uh, funding proposal that was put forward in the Senate, it was, was actually voted down yesterday. But there was more than $10 billion for humanitarian aid. And if you talk to people in the space, this is really critical funding. Um, it, you know, all signs point to whatever, whenever the annual funding agreement is worked out, that whatever's in that will not meet the needs, given the growing needs. Um, the majority of the funding in this bill would go to support um, humanitarian aid in Ukraine and in um, the Israel-Gaza conflict. But some of it would be global. Certainly some would address um, global food security or other uh, humanitarian needs um, sort of building from those uh, those conflicts. Um, I think what remains to be seen is if we do end up, uh, what's important to understand is that the controversial bit um, that sort of dogged this particular piece of legislation has actually been about U.S. border policy. So it hasn't been about foreign aid policy. Um, 
and that continues to be sort of an issue. I think my understanding is that they may try to introduce a bill that doesn't have that border policy attached. Um, I haven't had a chance to see a version of that bill to know how much of this humanitarian aid might still be there. Um, but I do know that there's a lot of folks advocating for some sort of emergency funding on, on this front. So um, I'll keep yeah. keep watching and keep watching this space and, and then we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we do if any of this funding actually gets approved. I appreciate that because you know, so much of the reporting is on the really prominent elements of this potential deal which include funding for Ukraine and Israel and the border itself and what happens there. But this is a really important piece that's sort of tucked in and that our community certainly wants to know about. Let me just mention two other things before we wrap up here. Um, there was a, an opinion article that we published that I want to just call readers' attention to by George Ingram and Susan Reichley that, that talks about an interesting piece of news in the USAID world, and that is Michelle Sumilas being sworn in just last month as the head of a new bureau at USAID. And it's been, I guess, four decades in which people have been pushing to unify the policy strategy and budget functions of USAID. That has now happened in this Bureau for Planning, Learning, and Resource Management. And have a look at this opinion article if you sort of want to get into the weeds, and I know we have a lot of wonky listeners here, of why this new bureau is potentially transformative for the agency and, and what it means. From, uh, from two writers who know a lot about it. Uh, and then maybe, Bob, you can just quickly mention the exclusive that we had from, from Colm Lynch this past week. So Colm had this great story about um, Tom Periello, who's a, a name that's probably familiar to a lot of DevEx readers being named um, as the new special envoy in Sudan, I think as many of our readers will know, um, you know, the conflict there is, really serious. I mean, I think it's something like 12,000 Sudanese are dead now, 8 million people are displaced. We're seeing mass killings in Darfur. Um, and, and to some extent, you know, I've seen a lot in the media lately about this being sort of a forgotten war. I think it is being overshadowed. Um, and so there's been really a long bipartisan push to get a special envoy in this role. Um, Tom Periello will have to be go through the, the vetting process. But um, I know that a congressional aide told column that he's likely an acceptable choice there. It also talks about John Godfrey, who's the current um, ambassador, stepping down. So I think really important to have someone who's focused on that conflict and, and trying to use America's, um, you know, the United States' uh, voice and, and policy to make a difference in, in a really difficult ongoing conflict that probably isn't getting as much attention as it deserves. Yeah, exactly. Something that's been um, really underreported on and does not get the notice that it, that it needs to get uh, at this moment. So, you know, I think as we wrap up, Jonathan, maybe uh, just a word from you, if you would, on something I know you've been writing and speaking about, and that is the summit of the future. Uh, not something we reported on this week, but just looking ahead, because you're somebody who knows the UN so well, there is this big summit coming up during the UN General Assembly in September. Uh, what should people know about that? Well, yeah, so the video that I did last week, so I've started these weekly videos called Global Corporation Update, and the video I did last week was recommending that that summit takes on a, a, a kind of slogan, nothing about us without us. And it's a summit that um, the Secretary General has been planning, and he's got a lot of uh, support behind within, I think, the bureaucracy and some great ideas, but the, among the member states, I think is still quite, I don't know about controversial, but people have got a lot on, right? There's, there's a lot to do 
And there's a lot of vibe that, well, do we really have time for, for, for another great summit? What's the point? What are we going to get out of it? So, you know, as someone who really wants to take every opportunity to embed more multilateralism, I, I, I'm going to lean into this summit and, and we are a global nation. We're going to try and work with others to try and make it as effective as possible. And our line, and I think what will, I hope, excite, especially leaders in the global south, but all over the world, is the idea that finally we embed this concept of nothing about us without us, voice and accountability in decisions that affect uh, us, whether we're countries, whether, whether we are communities, um, uh, at various levels. Um, amazingly, that phrase that you'll all know and that feels so very UN and very internationalist is not something that is considered to be the basis of, of UN uh, operations. So yeah, that, that, was what the, that was the piece that I, I uh, wrote. And, and I think that, that uh, we, we need some way, I think, of finding a couple of great outcomes for this summit and also um, a kind of a new theme for it. And, the, and actually, the piece I'm going to record today and put out today is about aid washing in Palestine. And I, I didn't even know you were just talking about the humanitarian bill. I didn't even know that it was kind of humanitarian money in there, really. All I'd seen in the news was that it was money for Ukraine and Israel. And, and it's not humanitarian money for Israel. It's military money for Israel to continue the massacre of civilians in Gaza. So that was a kind of that's what's prompted me. One of the reasons that prompted me to write this piece about, I guess, the role of global cooperation in aid washing, um, uh, injustice, and and in the case of what's happening in in Gaza, um, you know, plausible genocide according to the International Court of Justice. So that's that's what people can find if they tune in to to the YouTube today. Yeah, well, lots more to talk about as you can imagine, but we've got to wrap up. And you know, you, you mentioned the summit for the future. I would just say your idea is a great one. I'm not sure it's the Secretary General, so I'm interested to see how you can move the debate there because. It seems like a lot of the focus of the SG is on AI and, and wanting to this summit to talk a lot about you know, what, what the regulatory environment should be for, for responsible artificial intelligence in the future. Uh, but that is, a, that is a summit we will be covering, certainly. And so expect to, to see more from DevX on that. And we couldn't get to all the stories we had this week, but of course, subscribe to the DevX Newswire if you don't. So you can see everything that we're reporting on. It's our free daily newsletter. And uh, thanks so much to Jonathan Glennie, Voss Aldinger, and everybody who's uh, listening in. Thanks, everybody. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.